Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. Middle of uh, chapter 5. And um, he explained that nature, which is created through Tzimtzum, is not so rigid. Hashem created the world together with His mercy, with compassion. He mixed in mercy and compassion. That nature shouldn't be so rigid. Nature should be flexible. And He placed in nature, when He created the world, He placed within nature, within the letters, within the Tzimtzum, within the vessel, He also placed the light that's even greater than the Tzimtzum, which are the flashes, the moments of miracles and wonders that are dispersed throughout creation that remind us of the divine energy that's constantly creating, bringing the world into existence. It reminds us of the divine. It reminds us of the light, which is infinite, which transcends nature. And that's through the, the tzaddikim, the righteous ones, as they perform Torah mitzvot, as they live their lives, and also the miracles that are performed, the miracles that are in the Torah, and the miracles that are performed through, through these tzaddikim throughout, throughout the generations. So Hashem had mercy on us, because if we were not, if we had no miracles, if we never saw a breakthrough, if nature was rigid and inflexible, and we would never see the light inside, then it would be impossible for us really rise above nature. We would be stuck. We would be confined in nature. And Hashem had to leave us a tzaddik, a window to heaven, a window to the soul, and show us miracles. Once in a while, show us miracles to remind us that of the inner light, the infinite light, of the divine, of the godly, that, that will, could illuminate us and illuminate our consciousness. When you see a miracle, you see something divine. You experience something divine. And it leaves an impression on you. It has an impact on you. When you experience a miracle, it has an impression. For the next few days, at least, your davening is different, your learning is different, your unconditional love to your fellow Jews is different, your acts of goodness and kindness are different. It just elevates you. It lifts you up above the fray. So every once in a while, we need miracles. As a matter of fact, the deeper the darkness, the more illumination we need. The Baal Shem Tov, who perform miracles that we haven't seen since the times of the Bible. The Baal Shem Tov emerged in Jewish history at a period of great darkness. And all the Hasidic masters told the Rebbe, the miracles that the Rebbe's performed were on a scale and and numerous and because the greater the darkness the greater the light the greater the illumination to remind us to wake us up to remind us that this is a dream that we can look at nature and look at reality as an independent reality and that's just a, a dream a nightmare it's, a, it's false it's a false it's a distortion of reality the true way to look at reality is that reality is really a metaphor for godliness. So the miracle leaves an impression. The miracle is a wake-up, is a reminder, and grabs our attention. It reminds us that everything is really godly, and that everything, and life is, has a godly purpose, and every one of us has a godly mission. 
so this is the mercy that Hashem associated, the attribute of mercy in creation, so that the world should not just be created through the Timtum, but actually within the Timtum, within the letters, He already conditioned and He placed the light that's beyond, beyond the, uh, the letters. Okay, we left off. It was stated in the previous chapter. The last paragraph, 871. It was stated in the previous chapter that both the expansive and creative attribute of Kesed and the concealing and constrictive attribute of Javur transcend the grasp of created beings. Here the Alter Rebbe adds that these attributes transcend even the comprehension of those souls that proceed from the level of Asiwa. Even so lofty a soul as Moses which is the soul of the world of Asilat, cannot fathom the supernal attributes which are one with God himself. Regarding this example, regarding the fact that the attributes of Chesed and Gevurah transcend intellect, it was stated in the Zohar, above, in the side of supernal holiness, in the world of Asilat, which is far superior to the three lower worlds of Berea, Yitzhira, and Asiya, there is right and left, namely Hesed and Gevura. This statement was surely not written simply to inform us that Hesed and Gevura exist, for this is already well known. Rather, this means that both Gevura and as well as Hesed are attributes of godliness that transcend the intellect and comprehension of created beings. The fact that they are supernal attributes also helps us understand how they are able to combine when by, nef- by, when by definition they are opposites within the side of supernal holiness. There is no dissonance. God forbid, for all its components are complementary and integrated. At that level, Hesed and Gevura, though opposed by nature, coexist and conjoin as two opposites with a unity. This is possible because of their complete and total union with God. For he and his attributes are one in the world of Atua. With Chesed and Gevura being thus wholly united with him. So only God has the ability to combine within the Timsum, within the Gevura, within the concealment, within the letters, he can place a level of light which transcends the letters, which transcends the Timsum. The light, the way it passes through the prism, it passes through the Timsum, the prism limits the light. But within the letters, within the, within the prism, he also plays a level of light, the way light retains its purity, and um, the way light remains unaffected by the prism. Because since both of these attributes, the tzimtzum, God's restraint, and God's self-expression, the kindness, are both attributes of God, and they're both really infinite, they're both really attributes of God. So within God, they're absolutely one. Therefore, God is able to combine two opposites. He's able to have the tzimtzum, and yet within the tzimtzum, He's able to place within the tzimtzum a level that transcends the tzimtzum. That's why within creation, within the world that God created, the world of nature that God created, through via the tzimtzum, God also left a level of light that transcends the tzimtzum. Those are the miracles that illuminate that shatter the tzimtzum, that cause the sea to split. When the time comes and the tzaddik decrees, the miracle happens. 
the patient lives. The doctors say the patient must die, and by nature the patient must die. And the patient lives because the tzaddik gives a blessing and the patient lives. So it's within nature and yet it shatters nature because God placed within nature, when God created the world, God placed within nature, within letters, within the, the letters of God with which he creates the world, God's gvura, God's strength and self-restraint, God placed within these letters and these vessels, he also placed the level of chesed, the level of the light, where it remains unaffected by the tzimtzum. So that even within nature, nature itself is obliged to... Uh, to obey the decree of the tzaddik, to split, and to perform a miracle. So within the world, he placed miracles. So this is, this is the power of the divine. Because only God can combine two opposites. Because both chesed, both God's self-revelation and God's self-restraint, the symptom is all attributes of God. And they're both infinite. As he explained earlier, only God has the power to create and only God has the power to conceal. They're both aspects of God. And therefore, they're one and the one and undivisible. So God had mercy, and He mixed these two attributes. In the beginning, God intended to create the world only through Tzimtz, because He wanted to create a natural world, and that is the ultimate purpose. The ultimate goal is that there should be a limited world, a natural world, a very small world, with with the frame of reference, with a very limited frame of reference, time, space, concepts, limits, pen. Only five senses and ten svirot and ten uh, character traits. It's a very tiny, finite, limited world. And yet God wanted, not that we should destroy the frame, this framework, not that we should escape this framework, but that we should work within this framework, within this limited, very limited frame of reference, we should bring, introduce godliness, bring godliness into this frame of reference, elevate nature transform it into something divine and godly by performing Torah and mitzvot using the natural world that we live in, going about our daily natural lives, doing business, and doing business in a kosher way, etc. That's why God initially intended to create the world through din. Din means symptom, contraction. Not that God wanted to conduct the world in a very harsh way. But on the contrary, this is the ultimate purpose of creation. God wanted the world to be created through the symptom. The light should go through the prism so that the light should be able to enter into a world which is limited and differentiated. And a Jew within this world is able to operate within this world and is able to perform a miracle and transform nature into, and transform nature and turn it into something divine. But God saw, God, had, God saw that the world would not survive. As it is, we're struggling. <laughs> Even with all the miracles and all the wonders that we've seen in our lifetime. And look, we're still struggling. Look how difficult it is. 48 was a miracle. 67 was a miracle. Yom Kippur was a miracle. Tavi was a miracle. 81 was a miracle. 39 accurate misses in the scuds was a miracle. For every tragic bombing in Israel, there, there, there are 99 that they catch that don't, that don't go off. There are miracles, open and obvious miracles. And yet look how difficult it is. Can you imagine if there were no miracles? If the world were rigid and the world operated purely on a natural basis, if there was never any, uh, any illumination, then Hashem saw we could, the world could not survive. We would never be able to accomplish our goal. We need, every once in a while we need a miracle. We need a flash, an illumination. 
a reminder. And the darker the exile, the more illumination we need. That's why we had this brilliant flash of illumination of the Hasidic masters. The world has never seen such an outbreak of godliness, of holy people. Till the Baal Shem Tov, the hidden tzaddikim, were hidden. It was a secret society, not even of their existence. And suddenly, all these hidden tzaddikim were forced out of the closet, so to speak, and there was this outburst of light and, and illumination that just illuminated the darkness and gave the Jewish people hope and gave the average Jew a sense of mission, a sense of purpose, a sense of connection. So without the tzaddik, you would lose that sense of connection. Without the miracles in your life, you would also forget. You would forget. As Maimonides expresses himself, you forget in the, as you get caught in the tumult of life, you just forget. You fall asleep. It's very it's seductive. The dream of life is very seductive. The materialistic dream. And then you take the world at face value, and then the world just becomes a lie. Empty, meaningless, signifying nothing. But when you experience a miracle, it's a wake-up. It's a reminder that this world, everything in this world is, is divine providence. God is creating the world every moment. Everything is divine providence. We're here in a sense of mission. Everything in the world is a metaphor for something godly. There's a message. Everything is meaning. There's a message in everything that we see, hear, or encounter. So we need the miracles. Hashem had mercy and Hashem mixed the two. And he combined, via his compassion, he combined the attributes of kindness together with the attributes of symptom. that within the attributes of symptom, he placed within the letters, he placed a level of light that transcends the letters. So even within the symptom, after the symptom, even within the symptom and after the symptom, you should be able to be an illumination of a level that transcends the symptom, that shatters the symptom, that breaks the symptom, that allows a clear revelation of God an open manifestation of godliness. Well, you can't mistake it. It's not logical, it's not rational, it defies every law of nature, and it's just an open revelation of godliness that God creates the world, and it's His world, and He's creating it every moment, and who's to stop God, who's to limit God? If God wants the icicles to light, the icicles will light. If God wants His patient to live, the patient will live. If God wants this person to be successful, he'll be successful despite all odds, defying all odds. And all the miracles throughout Jewish history, and the greatest miracle of all, the miracle of Jewish survival and existence. <laughs> the ultimate miracle. So the Jew, in a sense, is the tzaddik of the world. The Jew, by his very being, his very presence. When you see a Jew walking down Park Avenue, you're looking at the greatest manifestation of godliness, the greatest miracle that ever happened. You think the splitting of the sea was something. It's nothing in comparison to the miracle of Jewish survival and existence that this Jew has survived pogroms and holocaust and Chomanitsky and anti-Semitism and yet they're all gone and forgotten and the Jew has never left the front page. This is an open manifestation of divine providence that God is running this world, that life is a moral narrative. It's not just about money, power, fame, politics. That's, that's the illusion of the world. That's the lie of the world. And people are defined by that line, define their lives accordingly, and then it's a life that means nothing and signifies nothing. But when you look at the Jew and you meditate and you reflect on the miracle of Jewish survival and existence, that reminds you that there's a God in this world, that there is a divine energy, 
that God is creating the world every moment. God is fully engaged in the world. Everything is divine providence. Every step of the way, every detail, every aspect, everything is divine providence. And that we have a mission. And every human being in this world has a mission. So this is the, the combination of the two attributes, which is really a godly quality to combine two opposites. But it's only God that, can, that could combine paradoxes and can combine these two opposites. So it's a revelation. A miracle is a revelation of godliness. Something that defies human logic. That there could be a miracle within the world and at the same time it totally is within the world and it totally shatters all the patterns of creation. The rigid patterns of nature. And then reveals that nature is not so rigid. Nature is flexible within nature. Nature makes way and allows all these miracles to happen. And therefore, the ultimate miracle is tonight is Purim Katan, the small Purim. The ultimate miracle is the, the miracle of Purim. Because that's nature allowing for a miracle, and yet it's totally swallowed up within nature. Nature is totally transformed, but in a very natural way, which is the, the ultimate paradox. And the ultimate expression of God combining his two opposite attributes of kindness and strength together. Okay, and now he's going to address a very serious question that we have. This whole lengthy parenthesis which began at the end of chapter 4, continues to the end of chapter 5, comes to explain a very fundamental question that we had based on the foundation of this portion of the Tanya, of the teaching of the Baal Shem Tov, that God creates the world each and every moment, that the divine energy creates, is constantly creating and bringing everything into existence. Therefore, the divine energy is the divine name, that every physical object has a divine name, a Hebrew name, which is really the divine energy that creates that particular object. So the divine name must constantly be within the object, creating it. The divine name of Mayim must constantly be within the water, creating the water. As we say in the blessing over the water, everything is created for your speech. At this moment, the divine speech, God says that should be water, is within that water, creating the water. The God, the divine speech that says that things should grow is within the, is within the ground, creating everything creating, uh, causing everything to grow, etc. So everything really exists within its source. So, so all physical objects are really like light, light of the sun, but when they are in the sun, within the source. When they are within the source, you don't even notice it. It's there, but you don't even notice it. All you notice is the sun. All that really exists is the sun. So the question is, if everything is really nothing other than the divine energy, so the truth is that everything is really divine. So what is the whole purpose of Torah and mitzvot? What is the whole idea of taking a, a secular object, a mundane object, and by doing a mitzvah, you transform it into a holy object? There's a difference between tefillin, that a bar mitzvah boy wears, and leather hide of an animal. This one is sacred. You have to treat it with sanctity, with holiness. You can't take it into inappropriate places, etc. A leather hide, you can bring anywhere. But if you're saying that everything in essence really is nothing other than the divine energy that's creating it. Each and every moment, there must be this dramatic energy that's bringing everything into existence, because existence is nothing less than astonishing. 
And existence is nothing less than a miracle. Really, we're all nothing. And the fact that we exist, something that doesn't exist in the source, that God could produce a physical nut or anything physical, physical water, is nothing short and astonishing. Only God, who has no source, is able to create something from nothing, something that doesn't exist in its source. So it takes a dramatic energy to create anything. It doesn't matter if it's a grain of sand or if it's, or if it's a galaxy. The tiniest grain of sand takes the, is the same miracle. The tiniest aspect of creation, the amoeba, is, takes this, uh, the atom takes the same miracle as, as, as the, the, the great object because something from nothing. The fact that God has to create something from nothing. So it takes a dramatic energy to create, to bring this amoeba into existence this grain of sand into existence. And this energy, creative energy, divine energy, must constantly create and must constantly be in that object. And if it would cease to constantly create, it would cease to exist. So, if that's the case, then everything is sacred. Even before you do a mitzvah with it. Because everything is really divine. Its whole being, its whole essence is nothing other than the divine energy. So what is the whole point of Torah mitzvah? Is Torah mitzvah an illusion? Are we really accomplishing something? And how can we differentiate something that's holy? You have to treat it holy. And the object that's not holy does not have that holiness. In truth, everything is holy. Everything is created with, with a Hebrew name. Everything is created with a divine energy. And the divine energy is within the object, as the Baal Shem Tov said, taught us. Every moment God is creating it and bringing it into existence. So then everything should be holy. And the answer was, the explanation was, that God creates the world through tzimtzum. And tzimtzum, he explained in the parentheses, is not just a shield. It's not just a cover-up. Tzimtzum is actually an active force, an active energy. These are the letters of God. Just like our soul is filled with letters, the letters contain the light. The letters contain your emotion, your intellect, and it actually shapes the emotion and the intellect and conveys it and communicates it. So too, the tzimtzum is actually the letters of God, so to speak, which come from a very deep source of the God. And they contain the light. They contain God's infinite capacity to create something from nothing, God's kindness, self-expression. They contain it. And it's like the light that goes through the prism, and therefore it gives us yellow light and blue light and purple light. It gives us, the effect is, a very differentiated effect. The light itself is undivisible, but the light, when it passes through the prism, it differentiates the light, and so too, when God's infinite light goes through the letters and it's contained through the letters, it actually differentiates the energy, and therefore we have many letters, many different shapes, many different types of energies, many combinations, which create many different names, which create all the diverse elements that exist in this universe, both physical and spiritual. That explains why the Torah, why Torah mitzvot are very real, because the symptom is real. That God has, God's letters have the ability to create a world which really is finite and limited, and a world which is separate from God. And that's why before the Jew does the mitzvah, the object is separate from God, the object is, is, sac- is uh, mundane, second. And it's only when a Jew takes a physical object he does a mitzvah with it. He has the power to fill that object with sanctity, to sanctify that object, and to transform it into something holy and to connect it with God. And so too, when a Jew goes about his daily life, he brings holiness into his life, into all his interactions with the physical world. He brings holiness into his business, into his home, into his food, into everything that he does. The Jew fills his life with holiness. 
and transforms the world into a place where God feels intimate and God feels at home. So what we are accomplishing is real. It's not an illusion. Tzimtzum is, uh, is the way the infinite light is condensed within the Tzimtzum. So Tzimtzum actually conveys the infinite, brings the infinite even into a multifaceted, into a pluralistic, into a differentiated world, and is able to bring the infinite light even into that setting. Like the analogy we discuss about Einstein, that when Einstein is able to communicate and condense his knowledge and able to convey it to someone who's light years ahead of him, but within that communication are the seeds of his whole original thought. So that ability to communicate is really that ability to take something, take something that's incommunicable, and to bring it into the world of communication, to bring it into a level, to a very limited level. And, and then that, that entire infinite scope is found and condensed within that level. And when the student will work for 40 years, he'll be able to, he'll be able to reveal the infinite. He'll be able to contain the infinite without shattering his mind. He'll be able to work his way up when he'll water those seeds, those seeds that were planted, and he'll cultivate it. Those seeds will, give, will bear fruit and will lead to, to its fruition, which is that the student will become one with the mind of Einstein. The student will be able to grasp that infinite scope of Einstein, but he'll be able to grasp it with his mind with his finite and limited mind. So the purpose of Tzimtzum is not to conceal. The purpose of Tzimtzum is to convey, to bring the infinite even into this finite setting. And that was the whole purpose of creation. God concealed himself, beginning with the original Tzimtzum. We made a quantum leap, and he created a radically limited world, which is... Nothing in comparison to the infinite. And yet God wants that we should fit, so to speak, His entire infinite light in this finite nothing, in this finite little world. He wants the Jew to discover the infinite within the finite world. He wants us to go about our daily life and do business, and and yet when we follow the Torah and the mitzvot and we resist temptations and we overcome all the difficulties and we're we're strong and we study Torah, we do mitzvot, we're able to discover godliness within this world, discover how everything in life, everything in the world is just a metaphor for godliness. And then the Jew is able to transform this physical, tiny, limited world and able to discover the infinite within this world without shattering the world, without breaking the world. So a Jew has the ability to reveal the infinite within the finite to reveal God's point of view. The symptom is from our point of view. And God wants us that within our point of view, we should be able to reveal God's point of view. From God's point of view, there is no symptom. Like Einstein is able to see through the metaphors, he sees the whole, his original thought. There's no hiding for Einstein. Within this tiny, limited, condensed idea that he's communicating to the student, which is reduced, highly reduced, and... And he uses analogies. and But he, to him, there's no symptom, there's no limitation, there's no contraction. Everything is condensed. He sees the whole thing. He sees everything as just a metaphor for some very profound and deep insight. 
The student can't see it. He's not ready to see it yet. The student has to work his way up, has to work his way back through his effort. But eventually, the student will, through his effort, the student will be able to work his way up until his mind will become one with the mind of Einstein. That is the whole purpose of creation. God wanted the world should remain a world. He didn't want to destroy the world or nullify the world or shatter the world. He wants the world to remain a world, a very finite, limited world with a frame of reference of time and space and concepts, this tiny, limited world that we live in with five senses. From God's point of view, there could have been 10 senses, 20 senses, 100 senses, 1,000 senses, infinite senses. We can't even imagine what a sixth sense would look like because that's how limited we are. Our whole frame of reference is so tiny. It's so minute. The most that we can grasp is so limited. It's so radically and drastically reduced. It's not even like a drop of the ocean compared to the ocean. And yet God wanted, for whatever reason, within this tiny limited framework that we live in, He wanted us to reveal godliness. He wanted us to work with nature, within nature, work with nature. Don't escape the world. Don't tune in and tune out. Work within the world. Do business, but do business in a kosher way. Lead a Jewish life. Eat, but eat kosher. Get married, but do it in a kosher way. Hashem wants us to work within the framework of nature, and yet within this framework, He wants us to reveal godliness that we should become one with God. So, so when a Jew does, takes, works within the tzimtzum, takes an object, he's revealing, he is working his way back up to God's point. He's revealing God's perspective, but within our frame of reference. It's almost combining two opposites. The infinite into the finite. Without the infinite destroying the finite, and without the finite losing its, its limit. So the question is, what about someone who's a tzaddik? A tzaddik, as we just described earlier, is someone who has no concealment. The tzaddik is connected. The tzaddik sees clearly. Especially a prophet, a navi. A navi is someone, a navi comes from the word to see. A navi is someone who sees clearly. There's no concealment. The navi sees. He sees godliness. We don't see godliness. We don't experience godliness. To us, godliness is something foreign, alien, remote, abstract. To the prophet, godliness is a pulsating reality. The Navi hears God speak to him. To the Navi, to the prophet, God's speech is connected to the speaker. He experiences, he has a revelation, he experiences God speaking. So the letters and the words of creation the letters with which God communicates is connected to the speaker. There's a speaker. It's connected to God. He experiences God. He hears God speaking. God speaking to him and through him. So the prophet sees clearly, especially Moshe, who is the ultimate prophet, greater even than the patriarchs, the greatest prophet that ever lived and will ever live. Moshe received the Torah. Moshe was the only prophet, the other prophets when God spoke to them, they had to lose all their senses. They would like fall into a trance and they would lose any sense of self. They would just like prostrate themselves and they would forget their physical being 
Moshe, however, was able to speak to God face to face, just like you and I are speaking. Moshe was able to contain this intense, intensely, intense revelation and contain it in a very natural way. His body was so clear. He was so egoless. There was no ego. There was no friction. The prophet had to lose his ego because his ego got in the way. It was like friction. It was a static. So the, the, the prophet had to transcend his ego and he had to go into some mystical, otherworldly state, or state of trance. And then he was able to receive this revelation of God's communication and experience God speaking and connecting the letters to the words to the speaker, Exper- experiencing that there's a speaker, that God is speaking, that this world is God's world. For us, the letters and the words of God are disconnected from the speaker. We don't realize that there's a speaker. The world is created from God's speech, but we don't realize that there's a speaker. We have words, but the words are disconnected from the speaker. We don't associate the words with the speaker. But the prophet is able to connect and to see and to experience the words and the speaker. And that's a tremendous revelation. If you experience that once in your life, you'll never be the same again. If you experience God, then God's speaking, and that this world is God's world, your life would be different. You wouldn't, you wouldn't even be tempted to do a sin. How could you sin? It's God's world. If you experience godliness, you can never sin. Moshe, however, Moshe was so egoless that there was no static, there was no friction. He, there was no need for him to go into a trance or to go into some otherworldly experience. When Moshe was in his conscious self, his normal self, his conscious self, he was totally egoless. He saw clearly, his body saw clearly. It was so clear to him that there's nothing, nothing but God. His whole being was just an extension of God. So much so he was even greater than the patriarchs. The patriarchs, the rabbis called the patriarchs the chariots. They were the chariots of God. Just like a chariot is totally nullified, egoless, totally nullified to the rider. In modern terminology, the car has no ego. The car is just put it in your hand wherever you want the car to go. You don't have to fight and wrestle with the car. You want to go right, and the car says, no, I want to go left. It's not that the car caught religion, and the car is going to uh, su- subject itself to you and obey you. That's religion. Religion is God tells me to do one thing. I have a mind of my own, but I subjugate myself and I'm religious and I worship God and therefore I bend my will before the will of God. The idea of a chariot is there's no will. I don't have any other will. My whole will is nothing other than the will of the rider. Wherever the rider wants me to go, I go. I don't have any other will. I don't have any personal agendas. And the ultimate analogy for that is the human body in relationship to the soul. The human body is like a chariot to the soul. The human body has no ego of its own. The human body has no mind of its own. The human body automatically is so in tune with the soul. It has no other identity than the soul. It's totally connected to the soul. It's totally nullified to the soul. Egos. The moment you lift up, you want to lift up your hand, your hand moves without even thinking. It's unselfconscious. That's how in tune the body is to the soul. So the body is like a chariot to the soul. That was the level of the patriarchs. Nevertheless, the body is an independent reality. God forbid a person passes away, the soul leaves the body. God forbid. The body remains. The body doesn't disappear. The body is a separate entity. 
But it's an entity that becomes totally one with the soul. But it's a separate entity. That was the level of the patriarchs. Yes, they were totally nullified before God. They were egoless, which is why they had a holy soul, they had a Jewish soul, and we inherited that soul from them till the end of time. Every Jewish, every descendant, every biological descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, and Leah will automatically have a Jewish soul, a holy soul, a piece of the divine essence, just because they're the biological children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Sarah, Rivka, and Leah, because... That was their essence. They were egoless and they were like a chariot to God so they merited to have that holy soul. But then, nevertheless, they were not on the level of Moshe. Moshe was in a much deeper level. Moshe wasn't just like a chariot that's nullified to the rider but still is a separate entity. Moshe's whole being was just was God. It was nothing else. And that's why Moshe gave us the Torah. In the Torah, you become totally one. Your mind becomes totally one with God. So you become, you are just, you just become an expression of God. There's nothing but God. There's not even an entity that's totally nullified before God. All there is is God. That was the, the level of self-nullification of Moshe. The deepest level of self-nullification. The holiest. That's why Moshe was the holiest prophet that ever lived and that ever will live. And he was the conduit through which God gave the Torah. And the truth is, all the Jewish people reached that level during the Ten Commandments. When God gave us the Ten Commandments, our soul expired. We became nullified. Our existence, our I, our ego, became totally nullified before God. Every one of us stood at Mount Sinai, our souls were expired. We couldn't handle it. It was too intense. We reached a level of self-nullification in which we ceased to exist. And we literally expired. So much so, the Jews came begging to Moshe and says, please stop, we can't handle it anymore. So after hearing the first two commandments from God himself, they heard the other eight commandments through Moshe. God spoke through Moshe. Moshe's throat. But Moshe remained on that level. Moshe was on that level. And to him that was natural. On his conscious level was a vessel, a vehicle, God can speak to him face to face. At any time, at any moment, he was always ready for God to speak to him. That's why Moshe separated, God told him to separate from Tzipporah. Because he was on, on a, on a, he was on a different level. And he was ready at any moment. He was like at Mount Sinai for the rest of his life. Never left Mount Sinai. So to Moshe, there is no concealment. Moshe, who's so egoless, Moshe reached the highest level of prophecy. There is no concealment. There is no world. There's no hiding. There's no concealment. There's nothing mundane. Everything is godly. He sees and experiences the divine energy, the name, the divine energy constantly creating within the Hebrew name that's within every object that exists. So to Moshe, there's seemingly there is no concealment. So what's the point of Moshe receiving the Torah? What was the point of Torah and mitzvot from Moshe? To take his world, his secular world, his mundane world, and do a mitzvah with it and transform it into a holy object. Even before Moshe does a mitzvah with an object, in Moshe's world, Moshe sees godliness. There's no concealment from Moshe. So Moshe sees and experiences godliness. In every year, think of creation, he sees God's infinite self-expression. He sees God's ability to create something from nothing. Only God has the ability to create something from nothing. In the differentiation and the laws of nature within the world, he sees God's strength. He sees God's self-restraint. He sees God's symptom. 
which is nothing less astounding than God's self-expression. Only God has the ability to conceal, as we learned earlier in chapter 4, only God has the ability to soak, to conceal himself, and, and to create a tzimtzum, through which the infinite light is differentiated. So either way, all Moshe sees is godliness. The right hand of God, the left hand of God, it's all godliness. So God is within everything. Everything is godly even before Moshe performs a mitzvah. So what is the purpose of Torah and mitzvah from Moshe? And he was the one who received the Torah. The Torah was given to Moshe. It's just an illusion. God forbid. And that's what he's going to address here. He's going to address that although Moshe was the greatest prophet that ever lived, and Moshe experienced godliness, and saw godliness, on a level that was greater than all the other prophets, and even greater than the patriarchs. Nevertheless, as we read in today's Torah portion, God tells Moshe, you cannot see my face. You can only see my back. Moshe requested to see God's face. And God says, no man could see my face. Even Moshe cannot see my face. Even Moshe is a human being. There is a demarcation between Moshe, a human being, and God. Even Moshe cannot see God. Moshe can only see the back of God. See, even Moshe's revelation, all the other prophets experience God speaking, the divine ability to speak, God's communication. And they connected the words to the speaker. They experienced God speaking, which was a transformational revelation, totally transformed them and changed their lives forever. Moshe's prophecy was on a higher level. Moshe's prophecy was on the level of God, the way God is for himself, so to speak. And we know that we are created in the image of God. So the reason why we have ten personality traits and attributes is because God has ten sfirot. Basically, you have four, three or four categories. First category is the mind, the brain. You have the right brain, you have the left brain, you have the integrative brain, you have chachma, bina, das, wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. The brain is for yourself. The brain has no connection, has no relationship to anyone outside of you. The brain is the way you are for yourself. You sit for yourself and you try to understand things and make sense of things. So you don't need anyone to think about things. On the contrary, you may find other people a distraction. Intellectuals like to live in quiet communities, like to live in ivory tower existence because they need the peace and quiet to think and to meditate and to reflect. So they remove themselves from the tumult and the hoo-ha and and the relationships, and they, it's a very solitary, solitary activity. Thinking people, people who think for a living, it's a very solitary activity. Writers, people who think for a living, it's a very solitary activity. Then you have the world of emotions. Emotions, that's where relationships begin. Emotion is all about my relationship to another person. I love this person. I'm attracted to this person. I'm repulsed by this person. What I, you love, what you hate, what you're repulsed. So it's all in relationship, or you have compassion. It's all in relationship to another person. Yet, it's your character. It's really about you. But it's about you, how you're defined in relation to another person. You feel attracted to this person. You feel repulsed by this person. It's really a self-description. The emotions are still internal. 
And it's really more about you than it is about the other person. It's your personal feelings towards the world around you. So it's you in relations to others, but it's still you. That's why it's your personality. It's your character. It describes you. What kind of person are you? Are you a loving person? Are you a compassionate person? Are you a strict person? Then comes the next level, the next category, which the Zohar says, the human body is really a reflection of these ten spherot. So you have the brains, you have the right brain, the left brain, the integrative brain. Then you have the torso, you have the right hand, the left hand, which is kindness. You do kindness with your right hand. You bring someone close with your right hand. You embrace someone with your right hand. You push someone away with your left hand. And then you have the heart, which is compassion. But that's still you. That's still part of you. You can't survive without a heart and you can't survive without a brain. Then you have what's outside of you. The two legs. This is the third category, which is really the... It's the outgrowth of the emotions. It's the next level. It's when you actually try to create a relationship with someone outside of you that you really have to start thinking, okay, how am I going to, how am I going to connect with the, with the other person? See, here already you have to already start relating to the other person in a very practical way. It's not about me, my emotional attributes, defining yourself. What do I love? What do I hate? Compassion, my compassion. But here, this is already, this is the auxiliaries, this is already the extension of the emotions. The right brain, the right foot pushes you forward. That's your leg that you go forward. That's your competitive spirit. That's your overcoming any obstacles. That's going forward. And the left leg is the restraint, the limit, the ability to be self-critical, the ability to... Um, to limit yourself. And then you have the aside, which is the male organ, which is the connection. That's the actual connection to the other person. So these attributes are, for example, a teacher. A teacher loves a student, and he wants to teach that student. So the love is internal. The teacher loves the student. And then the teacher also has a sense of restraint. I can't give the student too much. He knows that the student can't handle. He has to give the student on the level of the student. But this is all within the teacher himself. Then the teacher has to practically find the right words and the right communication to be able to communicate his idea to the student. So this is, the, this is where the two legs come in. How do I actually... Where the teacher actually starts finding the language which is an expression of the act of love. The expression of the act of love is that the teacher works on the right packaging. On the right packaging, how do you package? How do you package? How do I sell this? How do I reach the other person? You know, it's like in business. You have a concept. Then you have your internal process, what will work, what won't work. And then you have the packaging. You have to start thinking about the customer. I have to get closer to the customer. Till now, it's all within me. It's all an internal process. Then there comes the customer. So you have to start packaging it. How do I package this? How do I go forward? How do I package it in a way that the customer will accept it? 
And then you have the feedback, the, 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 the criticism, what works, what doesn't work, the right leg, the left leg, the restraint. And, and then you have to connect with the customer. And then comes the actual communication, the actual, when you make the self, when you actually communicate, when you sell and someone buys. That's speech. That's communication. When you're actually connecting, and that's the culmination of this whole process that began with the intellect, which is a very solitary, internal process, then the emotions, where you start relating to the person outside of you, and then the two legs, which are outside. A person could survive without his legs, but the legs take you forward, and the legs also act as a restraint, the right leg, the left leg, then connection, and then the actual contact. We actually make contact. We actually, there's a receiver, the receiver actually receives. There's a communication. If you're communicating and you're hitting home, there's a customer that's actually buying. That's speech. That's communication. So this is the whole, the ten svirot, the ten attributes. And this is the whole conscious, the conscious level is basically, basically divided into ten. So, it says when God created the world, it says in the beginning of Genesis, six days God made the heaven and the earth. It should have said within six days God made the heaven and the earth. So the Zohar says no, it means the six days made the heaven and the earth. God created the world with the six days. The six days correspond to the attributes of God, the emotional attributes of God. Because the three attributes of God's mind, so to speak, which is the Torah, that's the source of the Torah, that transcends the world. Because that's a solitary thing. That's the way God is for himself. Where God doesn't relate to the world. That's God's point of view and God's perspective which totally transcends and totally beyond us. It's only beginning with the emotional attributes, God's kindness, that that brings the world into existence. Because in order to be kind, God has to be kind to something. So the emotional attributes of God create the world, create a recipient, create something for God to relate to that God loves and God is attracted to, and then God's strength and God's restraint. Uh, God is repulsed by wickedness. God is attracted to kindness. And God wants to do kindness. So it's the six godly emotions that actually create the world. So it's only with the emotional attributes that God suddenly starts relating to the world, starts connecting to the world. But the truth is, even the emotional attributes of God are really too remote for the world because... Just like within, within a human being, the, the three basic emotional attributes, which are the right hand, the left hand, and the heart, kindness and, and strength and compassion, is still a, it's, a, it's your characterization. It's, it's still something within you. Yes, it's you in relationship to someone else, but it's really all internal. So really, you don't really have yet a connection to the world. The world is still something very foreign. The outsider is still something very foreign. It's all, it's all going on inside of you. So even that's too remote from the world. It's only with the next level, with Netzach and Hoid and Yusoid, which is, so to speak, represented by the legs, which are outside, which is where you already are st- starting to package it, where you're getting very close. The teacher is getting closer to the student. You're getting closer to the customer. You're actually packaging it. You're actually relating to the customer on his level, that you're becoming much closer to, on that level, the world comes more into existence. The world becomes a little more, more prominent. 
And then the ultimate, the ultimate source of creation and the ultimate connection is God's speech. Because that's the communication. That's when you actually make the sale. That's when you actually make contact. When the teacher makes contact with the student and the student receives and absorbs the message that the teacher is teaching him. And then, then there's a communication. So the prophets, the prophets were able to see and experience the level of God speaking. They couldn't perceive anything beyond that because anything beyond that is really the level of God and godliness. And that was beyond their comprehension. Moshe was the only prophet who perceived and experienced a higher level than God's communication. He perceived God's emotional attributes, as we described here. God's ability to create, God's infinite ability to create something from nothing, God's infinite ability to hide and conceal. But even that was too high for Moshe. Moshe couldn't perceive that face-to-face, so to speak. He could only perceive God's back, so to speak. In other words, he was only able to perceive the level of God's kindness, the way the level of God's kindness was concealed within the lower level, which is God's netzach and hoid, which is God's ability to communicate and to relate and to connect to, to the world outside of God, which is represented by the two legs and which is outside of the body. So that was the level that Moshe was able to perceive and to see. It's it that uh, Moses and Hashem, they studied Torah together. Yes, the prophecy of Moshe. Moshe received the Torah. But the level that he was able to perceive and see is the level of God's emotions and the way they were clothed and concealed within the lower level, which is Neitzach and Hoid, which is the auxiliaries and the offshoots of God's emotional attributes. So the emotional attributes themselves, Moshe could not see and perceive. And therefore, even for Moshe, there is a world. There is a disconnect. There is something outside of God. Of course, Moshe's world is much greater than anything that we can imagine. But even to Moshe, there is God and there's something that's disconnected from God. And Moshe was given Torah mitzvah to take his world and to do a mitzvah with it and to make it one with God. So even for Moshe, the giving of the Torah mitzvot were very genuine, especially Moshe. Moshe was the one who received the Torah. The Torah was given at Mount Sinai. The Ten Commandments were given at Mount Sinai. But the, after this, where this is in the book, the word book of Shmuel, right? So there's still three more chapters. So the Torah was the complete Torah was given before the Jews actually continued their journey to Israel through the desert. I mean, they got it before they got there. Now, there's an argument amongst the rabbis whether all the mitzvot were given at Mount Sinai, or whether no, the mitzvot were given over the forty years in the desert. Some were given at Sinai. They camped out at Sinai for over a year, for close to a year, almost a year. And some were given actually in the plains of Moab, right before they entered into the Promised Land, 40 years later. Many mitzvot that we don't find earlier in the Torah. The only place we find them is in Deuteronomy. So there's an argument between um, Rabbi Shmuel, Rabbi Akiva, whether all the mitzvot were given at Sinai or whether the mitzvot were given over 40 years. This is a Talmudic argument, a Mishnaic argument between the Mishnaic rabbis. But um, when Moshe, right before he passed away, he wrote the whole Torah. And he gave us the completed Torah, the whole Torah. Let's learn inside. I know this is very, this is very difficult material. This is uh, very Kabbalistic. And um, 
it's refreshing sometimes to be reminded how little we know. <laughs> and that no, but what, <laughs> what, what I'm getting from this is yes. that <clears> through <throat> how little we know, but what God did not conceal it from our ever knowing it, if we, so to speak, took the trouble to, to follow the rules, there would be less concealment. Concealment is only because of our thick-headedness or our whatever you call it, our unwillingness to uh, follow the Torah. The concealment is very real, but we have the keys to unlock. That's, yeah, that's we I'm have the flashlight. Yeah, you just got to turn it on. That's the Torah. The Torah is the flashlight. That that we got to we have to wake ourselves up and we have to turn on the flashlight. That we he have only, the keys. He only concealed it from our slumber. Yeah. Our, our inability that's, to rise above. That's our choice, right. To fill, our, right. to fill what our potential is. Yes, yes. We could wake up. The Torah and the mitzvot is like the, our alarm clock. We could wake up and live reality where life becomes meaningful. Every moment in life becomes meaningful. Every day becomes meaningful. Every activity, every experience becomes meaningful and real. Or we can go through life where everything is meaningless. Absolutely meaningless. Which we do. Which is, describes... The normal. <laughs> so that's our choice. The Torah and the mitzvot, we were given the flashlight, we were given the alarm clock, we were given the ability to wake up, to wake ourselves up. But that's one thing we have to do to ourselves. God gives us the tools, He gives us the flashlight, He gives us the alarm clock, He gives us the chauffeur, but we have to wake ourselves up. That's one thing we have to do for ourselves. No one can do that for us. No one. Our teachers can do it for us. Our parents can do that for us. We are the only ones who can do it for ourselves. We have to wake ourselves up. And when you wake yourself up, your life becomes real and meaningful and satisfying. When you live in illusion, ultimately, something gnaws down very deep inside of you. It's not real. You don't feel satisfied. You feel it's empty. You experience the emptiness. You realize how empty it is. It's meaningless. You know, you could be a billionaire, you could be a senator, you could be... It's, but it's a dream. It's not... There's no reality to it. When you do Torah and mitzvot, suddenly everything you do becomes real and meaningful and pleasurable and gives you satisfaction and nachas. That's our choice. We have freedom of choice. That's why what we accomplish really makes a difference. It's not an illusion. It's real. The challenges are real. Our lives are real. If we wake up and we grab the bull by the horn and we take charge of our lives and we follow the Torah, use the flashlight and study the Torah and illuminate our lives and open our eyes to the divine providence and every moment becomes meaningful, every day becomes meaningful and filled with depth and meaning and purpose and gives us nachas and makes us healthy and, and if we choose to fall asleep and to remain fast asleep and within sleep a different level. There's deep sleepers. <laughs> you know, people who are nothing short of a nuclear bomb won't, won't wake them up. You know? There's a coma. <laughs> but a person who lives a life as though it's meaningless, isn't that in other respects part of God's divine plan? Because if it wasn't part of God's divine plan, he wouldn't be sleeping. But that's where freedom of choice comes in. But it's still part of God's plan. Like the person who follows no mitzvahs, no tie to Judaism, his entire life, passes away a meaningless religious existence as far as the height of God. I mean, that's still part of God's divine plan, is it not? The divine plan is that when the person wakes up, he'll wake up with a vengeance. But there are many people that don't wake up. Eventually, everyone will wake up. In this life. 
In this life, not everybody. Eventually, everyone will wake up. And when they wake up, they'll wake up with, wake up with a vengeance. The more, the longer you were asleep, the deeper your slumber and your sleep, then you wake up and you realize all the time that was lost and all the narishkeit and foolishness that you spend your years and you wake up with a vengeance. And then you do the, the, the Torah and mitzvot, you, you, you're awake, you appreciate every moment and it's done with such zest and such depth and such intensity that the tzaddik who was awake all his life can never match that. That's why the baltruva is much greater than the tzaddik. Because the, the tzaddik can never match that. The one who grew up in the straight and narrow can never match that. So one could argue that a person who lives a life, his entire physical life on this earth, that's, let's say, meaningless, no, no connection to our mitzvahs, is it possible that he wakes up in the afterlife? Or, you know? No, we Jews believe in the concept of reincarnation. <coughs> so eventually, in one lifetime or the other, everyone will wake up, but that's true in the previous generations. In this generation, there's no pushing off. There's no reincarnation because the Mashiach is coming now. So the time is now. So the Torah promises every single Jew will wake up. Every single Jew will do Teshuvah. Not a single Jew will be left behind. The Torah promises. The Torah promises. Every last Jew, no Jew will be left behind. Every last one will come home. God promises. Every spark, every neshama. Every holy neshama will come. So let's learn what we just discussed. Let's learn inside. It's written very cryptically. It's very, very deep, profound concepts. And, uh, but obviously the Alter Rebbe put it in for us to learn. So let's, let's try to learn it to the best of our ability. Even the comprehension, Even the comprehension of Moses, the our teacher. Even the comprehension of Moses, our teacher, peace unto him in his prophetic vision, did not extend to the world of Atsilot itself, except through its being clothed in the world of Berea. And even then, his comprehension of the world of Atsilot did not extend to these two attributes, for example, Chesed and Gavorah, but only insofar as they were previously clothed in attributes which are of lower levels than themselves, the attributes of Netzach, victory, eternity, Hud, splendor, and Yasad, foundation. The attribute of Netzach being merely an offshoot of Chesed and Hud, an offshoot of Gavorah so that through them Chesed and Gabura percolate down into Yesod, which in turn transmits its influence to yet lower levels, as is explained in Sha'ar HaNevuah concerning the level of Moses' prophecy. So now that we understand Moshe... (laughs) (laughs) You take a lot for granted. (laughs) Our soul understands Moshe. Um, But we still have to explain... We still have to explain the concept of Gan Eden, the concept of the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden is a reward for the souls that lived in this world, that lived a righteous life, that studied Torah in this world, in this lifetime. The fact that you're sitting here today, everything, everything is, there's a reward for everything. And the reward is in the afterlife for studying Torah and for doing mitzvah, there's a reward. What is the reward of Gan Eden? something that the soul did not achieve before, it only achieves after living in this world and studying Torah and doing mitzvot and overcoming tests, that a person achieves the reward of Gan Eden. What is the reward of Gan Eden? The reward of Gan Eden is that there is actually a revelation of godliness. The soul has pleasure. The soul comprehends, studies Torah, comprehends godliness. 
experiences and comprehends godliness and gets pleasure from godliness. Indescribable pleasure. In this world, we only know of the reality of God. But we don't actually experience godliness. Even in the case of miracles that we learned earlier that God performs miracles throughout all of history, God has shown us miracles which is a revelation of godliness, a revelation of the infinite. It shatters the laws of nature. Nevertheless, we just see the effect of the revelation of God. We don't actually experience the revelation of godliness. We just see the impact. We say, wow, there must be some, this is something divine. There must have been an intense godly revelation that caused this earth-shattering miracle to happen. This couple who couldn't have children suddenly had a child. The doctors swore this person was going to die and this person outlived all his doctors. Uh, the sea split. So the Jews saw the effect of the godly revelation. But they didn't necessarily experience the godly revelation itself. They just saw the impact. That there was a godly revelation here that caused a shattering of the laws of nature. A miracle, something unusual happened. In Gan Eden, in the Garden of Eden, you actually experience, you actually internalize the revelation of godliness. You experience that revelation of godliness. So it's a much greater level of, level of miracles. There you're just seeing the impact of the miracle. It's like electricity. We don't know what electricity is, but we see its impact. We know its impact. You can't explain. We just know it's a force. It's a force of nature. We see the impact. So too with miracles. You see the impact of the revelation of godliness. It was an intense revelation of godliness. Something unusual. Unusual revelation of godliness. Not a limited revelation, but an intense, infinite revelation of godliness, which caused a shattering of the, a shattering of the laws of nature and caused a miracle. In Gan Eden, the Garden of Eden, you actually experience the revelation of godliness. You derive pleasure from the revelation of godliness. You see godliness, and you experience godliness. That's the reward of the soul that lived the righteous life in this world, in this life. There are rewards for waking up at 7 o'clock every morning. <laughs> Infinite rewards, eternal rewards. What's the eternal reward? That you experience eternity. A revelation of godliness, which is eternal. Something that transcends human logic. It's divine. You taste the divine. You touch the divine. You experience the divine. And it gives you indescribable pleasure. All the pleasures in the world can't even compare to the smallest level, the lowest level of the pleasure of Ganadin that the soul achieves in the afterlife. The eternal, eternal reward. So this leads to a question. If there's a revelation of godliness, then how could there be a world? Ganadin is a world. It's not God. It's a reward for the souls. The souls are individual conscious beings, sentient beings, conscious beings who are purely spiritual. They're finite beings. A soul is a finite being, a purely spiritual, finite, sentient being. And this soul who is unencumbered by the body, is able to perceive godliness and is able to, to, to receive the pleasure of, pleasure of knowing and understanding, comprehending and seeing godliness, which gives the soul indescribable pleasure, which is the greatest reward possible. But the question is, if there's a revelation of godliness, then how could there be a world? Why, doesn't, why isn't the world nullified? We just said earlier that there cannot be a world unless there's a tzimtzum, unless there is, if God's attribute of kindness if godliness was revealed, if we were able to see and perceive the divine energy, the creative energy that's constantly creating everything, 
then we would cease to exist. That's what he said earlier in chapter 3. If you were able to see the divine energy, God's infinite creative ability, and you, then you would cease to exist. It would be, you would be totally nullified. There would be no existence. It's only because of God's concealment, God's attribute of gavur, of spring, that God hides himself and therefore we're able to exist and sense our existence. But if in the Ganeidin, if in the reward, in the eternal reward, the soul perceives and experiences godliness, experiences the eternal, the infinite, then the soul should be nullified. Ganeidin should be nullified. The Garden of Eden should be nullified. That whole world should be totally nullified. So how is it possible you should have a world, a spiritual world, with souls, sentient beings, independent beings, with their own personality and character, and yet they're able to experience the revelation? Are you talking about on an God. individual basis? The souls in paradise. All souls? The souls that are in paradise. They are. But there are souls that are not in paradise. Eventually all souls find their way there. Some have some make a stop somewhere else first. But, uh, eventually, <coughs> after twelve months or after whatever it is, eventually. <laughs> I'm just trying to understand. Are we talking about afterlife? The afterlife. The afterlife. As eventually, as all souls make their way there because the soul is essentially good. Don't forget. So the question is that that world should be nullified. Even the world of the angels, the world of the souls, is a world. It's separate from God. Independent beings, sentient beings, conscious beings, spiritual beings, with conscious sentient beings, who see and hear spiritually, who perceive, who comprehend. If they're able to comprehend and see the essence of God, then there should be no concealment for them. Then the world should be nullified. So how are they able to contain this revelation and yet remain separate, remain separate beings, remain a world? He's going to reveal that? that that's what he's going to reveal right now. Last paragraph in 873. It is only the tzaddikim in Gan Eden who are granted the reward of comprehending the spreading forth of the life force and light which issues from these two attributes, chesed and gavura. This comprehension of the spreading forth of life force and light which issues from these two attributes is the food of the souls of the tzaddikim who in this world engage in the study of Torah for from the confusion of these two attributes, a firmament, i.e., an or, motif, a transcendental, literally encompassing degree of illumination, is spread over the souls in Ghanaian. And it is this firmament that empowers them to receive this confusion. This firmament is called Raza de Orreta, secret of the Torah, i.e., the mystical dimension of the Torah. Within this firmament is the secret of the 22 letters of the Torah, which derive from an even higher level than the rational and comprehensible aspect of the Torah, which was given as an expression of these two attributes. As it is written, from his right hand he gave unto them the fiery law. The right hand represents chesed, while fiery alludes to the element of gavura that is present in the Torah. From this firmament, from this transcendental illumination, drops doom, symbolic of the esoteric insights of the Torah as food for the souls, i.e. on or imi, a degree of illumination that can be internalized and comprehended, issues forth from the firmament. Being comprehensible, this level of perception is likened to food which is ingested eternally, i.e. a knowledge of the secret of the 22 letters of the Torah. 
For this firmament is the secret and level of knowledge, Das. And the dew that issues forth from it is the knowledge of the secret of 22 letters of the Torah. Okay. But what he's saying here is the Torah combines opposites. Where was the seat of the Torah? Where was the house of the Torah? We just learned in the last few weeks in the Torah. What was the seat of the Torah? The Ark, the Holy of Holies. That's where the contained the Luchot. The Ark, the rabbis tell us, displayed paradoxical properties. On one hand, the Ark had a measurement. The room had a measurement. And yet, if you measure the Ark, it had the proper measurement that the Torah gives us, the exact measurement. If you measured from one end of the room to the other, the room had a measurement. Then if you measured from one side of the ark to the end of the room and the other side of the ark to the end of the room, it's as if the ark did not exist. The ark took up space and didn't take up space at the same time. It was the ultimate miracle. It squared the circle. It was a paradox. It was two opposites at the same time. Impossible. Not like the miracles that were in the temple, the ten miracles that the Mishnah enumerates. Those were miracles that shattered the laws of nature and a miracle happened. This would be the equivalent of the elephant fitting through the needle hole. But not that the elephant miraculously shrunk, you know, let shrink the elephant and it was able to fit into a needle. That would be a stupendous miracle. Well, the needle hole suddenly expanded wide enough that the elephant was able to walk through the needle hole. That would also be a stupendous miracle. This would be an impossible miracle. The elephant remained an elephant. The needle hole remained a needle hole. And at the same time, the elephant was able to walk through the needle hole. This defies the mind. It's, it's a paradox. It's a contradiction. It's an impossibility. That's the type of miracle that happened in the Holy of Holies. It took up space. It didn't take up space at the same time, simultaneously. It's an impossibility. Squaring the circle. This is the nature of Torah. The nature of Torah is, Torah is one with God, just like God is paradoxical, God could contain paradoxes, God is undefined. The Torah is revealing God's point of view. From God's point of view, God could contain paradoxes. From God's point of view, infinite and finite is squaring the circle. It's paradoxical and yet it's one. It's one and the same. Because from God, God's point of view, the finite is nothing other than the infinite. God is undefined. God is neither finite. God is neither infinite. God is not limited to being infinite. Infinite is also, is also a limit. God is so infinite that He's not even infinite. He's infinite. He's finite. He's both. He can combine both. So the Torah is the ultimate revelation of God's point of view. From God's point of view, there is no conflict. There is no contradiction. There is no paradox. God unites all paradoxes. God is absolutely one. and God's absolute unity, all paradoxes are one. <laughs> So the finite, from God's point of view, is nothing other than the infinite. It's God's ultimate expression of His infinity. God is so infinite that He's not even limited to being infinite. He can even be finite. So the finite is not a contradiction to the infinite. It's, it's an expression of God's ultimate, ultimate infinity, the fact that God is undefined. Not only is infinite, He's totally undefined, and therefore He can simultaneously express Himself in infinite and finite and merge them together like, as in the Holy of Holies. This is what the Torah is all about. Torah is the ultimate paradox, and Torah is the ultimate ability to merge and to fuse infinite and finite. That explains, now, that explains the question that he had. What is the reward of Ganeidin? What is the heaven that's over Ganeidin that's made up of the 22 letters of the Torah? 
In other words, in Gan Eden, in the Garden of Eden, they study the secrets of the Torah. <coughs> Mystical, the secrets of the Torah. So God, the godliness is revealed through the Torah. The Torah is able to contain two opposites. That there should be a world, a finite world, a limited world, there should be a soul, and a world, the world of the Garden of Eden. And at the same time, you should be able to delight and to, and to derive pleasure from God's infinite revelation, from a ray and, and a, 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 an illumination of God's infinite self, that the soul is able to internalize, to digest, is able to receive indescribable pleasure from the secrets of the Torah, from God's revelation, and at the same time remain a soul, conscious being, a sentient being, a finite, limited within the framework of the world of the Garden of Eden. So that's the nature of the Torah, that the Torah is able to combine two opposites finite and infinite at the same time because the Torah is really a revelation of God from God's perspective from God's perspective there is no finite, infinite all there is is God they both merge in the absolute reality of God so God could contain opposites and that's the effect that's the Garden of Eden the special reward of the Garden of Eden as a result of all the Torah that they studied they receive the reward that they're able to comprehend the secrets of the Torah the 22 letters of the Torah which creates the heaven above them, which drips down tal, do, which is the, the nourishment of the soul. The souls imbibe it, internalize it. This is the nourishment, meaning the deep, deep pleasure that they get. And each and every day, they're constantly growing. Each and every day, there's a new revelation, a new secret of the Torah, deeper insights and deeper insights, ad infinitum. The patriarchs have been in, in heaven already for 3,800 3, years. And every day, Abraham is growing three times a day. He's constantly learning something new and has infinite pleasure. And at the same time, remaining a soul, a finite, sentient being, living within a framework within the Garden of Eden. So this explains why the souls are not nullified and the Garden of Eden is not nullified. And now we come to the last line. The last question that remains is, he says, so the Torah is able to combine God's kindness, God's infinite self-expression, and God's strength God's self-restraint, and although the Garden of Eden is a place where they study Torah, which is an act of the mind, and yet he says that it's a revelation of God's emotional attributes, which is emotions. So he says what it really refers to is that, knowledge, which contains, just like that within a person, knowledge, conviction, contains the emotion, is the key that opens up to the emotion. It contains the emotion of kindness and the emotion of strength. So it's really referring to das, das, which is the key to the emotions and combines the two emotions. And therefore, you have God's infinite revelation. At the same time, you have God's concealment, which creates a finite soul, a sentient being, a conscience being, and creates the world of the Garden of Eden. And you have them both at the same time, revelation and concealment at the same time, because within the Torah, they merge and they fuse as one. Just like the... the the modern physicist, when the modern physicist goes very deep down into reality, to the level of the of quantum mechanics, the electromagnetic level of, of, you discover that reality is, is paradoxical. It's waves and it's particles at the same time. It makes no sense. It defies logic. But that's the, when you get down to the ultimate truth, all paradoxes, God merges all paradoxes. So that's the revelation of the Torah. But the question remains, Ganeiden is not just a reward for the studying of Torah. Ganeiden is also a reward for doing mitzvah. 
So within Torah, you can explain that Torah, like the Holy, in the Holy of Holies, that's the house of the Ark, the Ten Commandments, the Holy of Holies, that's the nature of Torah, that it combines two opposites. But mitzvot are differentiated. Mitzvot are not like Torah. The difference between mitzvot and Torah, Torah is compared to the blood within a person. It's the same blood that circulates throughout the whole body. While the mitzvot are 248 limbs, 248 mitzvot, 248 limbs. Every limb is clearly differentiated, delineated. One limb doesn't compare to another limb. A heart is a heart, a liver is a liver, a pancreas is a pancreas. Every limb is different. So over there, there is differentiation. So what is the reward for mitzvot? The reward of the mitzvot, if God reveals His infinite light, that should nullify the world of Gan Eden. That should nullify the soul. How is the soul able to contain the reward for the mitzvah without being nullified? And that's what he concludes. You want to conclude the... And the Torah is the food. Page 875. The Torah is the food of the souls in Gan Eden and the commandments are their garments. As all this is explained in Zohar, we thus see the attributes of Chesed and Gvorah of the world of Atzilut transcend not only the comprehension of created beings, but even souls at the level of Atzilut cannot comprehend them, only as a reward of the souls of Ganeda and able to comprehend the mere diffusion of these two attributes. So the, the difference is, the key is, that Torah is food. The Torah, someone who studies Torah and receives a reward is able to actually get pleasure from, from, from studying Torah gets pleasure from godliness. Someone who did mitzvot, his reward is more like a garment that's really external to him. You can't internalize it. Because you're right, if you were able to internalize this level of godliness, you would cease to exist. It would nullify your existence. So the level of kindness that they can receive is only by way of a garment that surrounds them, that's above them, that protects them, that shields them. But they can't actually internalize it. They don't get pleasure from it. It protects you and it's comforting, but it's not the same as when you eat. When you eat and you taste something, it gives you pleasure. You internalize it. It's only those who study Torah and receive the reward that they get, they're able to taste godliness. They're able to receive pleasure from God. And that doesn't nullify them because it's Torah. That's the power of Torah. It's the, it's the heavens above them that's created from, from the letters of the Torah, from the attribute of Das, which contains kindness and strength. And therefore, it's only, as he says, a diffusion of these two attributes. They don't get the attribute themselves that would destroy them. They just get a diffusion of these two attributes. And therefore, the world of Ganeden is not nullified, and the souls are not nullified, and they're able at the same time to derive pleasure and tremendous pleasure from ecstasy and pleasure from perceiving and understanding godliness. Much more than you do here. I have to ask a question. The secrets, because over there, they study the spiritual. For example, here you learn two people grab hold of a talus. You remember in yeshiva? This one says it's mine, this one says it's mine. When they study this law, they don't study physical. There's no talus up there, and there's no two people finding a talus, a cloth, clothes. Over there, they study the spiritual dimension. Two Jews found a soul. This one says, I brought the soul back to Hashem. This one says, I brought back to Hashem. Who gets the reward? Every halacha as a spiritual parallel, what it means spiritually. So with there, the study of the Torah, everything you learn in the Talmud, which discusses the physical, we talk about apples, and we talk about trees, and we talk about agriculture, and we talk about animals, and we talk about, has a parallel, has a spiritual parallel. In Gan Eden, they study the secrets of the Torah, they study the soul of the Torah, they study the way, as the previous Abba Rebbe once said, 
the Talmud that says a machlif if someone exchanges an ox for a donkey, if someone thinks that in Gan Eden, in the Garden of Eden, that's how they study Torah, that they're talking about an ox and a donkey, there's no ox in paradise, no donkey. Then he himself is a donkey. If you don't understand that in the Garden of Eden, they study Torah, the secrets of the Torah, the soul of the Torah, on a much deeper level, on a spiritual level, on a divine level, that's the reward, that everything that you learn in this world, in a physical, simple prat, on a simple level, in the Garden of Eden, the secrets of the Torah are revealed to you. The godly meaning of the Torah, the Kabbalistic meaning of everything in the Torah is revealed to you. And that study is a whole different level. It gives you tremendous delight and pleasure. What is the reason that you are able to comprehend this whole concept and someone like me has to struggle to even get a little insight into it. I don't mean you and I personally, but why are you blessed to be able to comprehend this whole thing like it was, like you knew it, by, you were born with it? And, and I have to struggle. What, 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 what? No, why, do, why did it, me or... Why, why are you suspecting the innocent? <laughs> did, I, did I make the question clear or not? Uh, I'm not referring to you and I per se. I guess you could ask the same question of the remedy. Well, we've been learning these concepts from the age of 12 and 13. And still it's very, very, it's very, very deep concepts. No, you articulate it like, like you really understand it. I must be a good actor. That's where it comes across to me. <laughs> No, I'm serious, though, Hello because I. We, we, you know what I'm talking about. We struggle every week. Hello I mean, uh, I'm on the you verge of, of getting... The first 40 years is the hardest, I yeah. guess. <laughs> <laughs> but I passed, I get used to it, right? I passed that a long time ago. <laughs> I didn't. That's an excuse. <laughs> you know, it's, it's parentheses like this that keep you a little honest. <laughs> because you, you think you understand, you think you know, and then suddenly you get... You get thrown Do you the curve. have any aha moments when you're reading this? Something new comes to you that it's not. It's not. It's not. It's not till you learn something 60, 70 times that you first begin to understand it. Maybe. So we, I started late. Like I'm, Look forward. It's like I'm a teenager now learning something. <laughs> Listen, compared to God, we're all little children. The seder is around the corner. A 99-year-old Jew sits by the seder and makes an introduction. Tata. Father, I'm going to ask you the four questions. He hasn't seen his father in 70 years. Who's he talking to? When we say that say there's centers around children, we become the children. The 99-year-old rabbi, mystic, and scholar sits by the seder like a little child. Because compared to God, you realize we're all starting all over again. We're, we know nothing. The more you know, the more you realize how little you know. And, and you, you feel like a child. Um, you're dealing with things that are infinite. We're talking about things that are undefined, infinite, godly. It's very humbling. You know, it's not like law, science, or physics, or math. You're talking about something yeah, very once real. You, once you know those things, you know them. But this is, you, never, you don't know, ever know. Right, those things you know. Uh, even that, the truth is, 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 there's so much wisdom there. And the, you know, the more you know, the more you realize how little you know. But this is something that you're dealing with things that are ultimately beyond grasp, the, the godly thing. It keeps you humble, it keeps you honest. That's why Hasidus, studying Hasidus is not a luxury. Because if a Jew only studies Talmud, Talmud deals with things you can grasp. So it can get to your head. I know it, and I'm so brilliant, and I'm so smart. When you study Tanya, <laughs> it, 
it, it, it wakes you up. It makes you realize, you know, you're dealing with godly things. It keeps you honest. It keeps you a little humble. It keeps you a little... Uh, it opens your mind a little, you know. It, it, it's, so it's, it's really... Uh, it's an urgent necessity for a Jew to be a passionate Jew today. Not be so detached. And, but to really be an honest Jew, a totally passionate Jew. You really have to study Hasidus. And you really... The, great, the more... The greater the mind, the more you have to delve into it. You really have to delve into these things and really try to understand it and learn. You have to learn a lot, to think a lot, and you have to explain it to yourself because every one of us thinks differently. If it makes sense to you, it doesn't necessarily mean it makes sense to me. It's not enough to know that the rabbi understands it. You know, we have to understand it or that the rabbi understood it. The whole point of Chabad was it's not enough that the rabbi understood it. All the other chassidim was enough the rabbi understood it. The whole point of Chabad is we have to understand it. And we really has to understand it. it. has to make sense to us. It has to excite us. It has to affect us. How do you know something makes sense to you? If it changes you. If it changes your behavior. That's the ultimate litmus test. How do we know that our understanding is real? Maybe I'm just flying in fantasy land. I'm, you know, how many angels are, are, are dancing on a, on, a, on a pin of a needle? How do we know it's real? If it has an impact on your life, on your emotions, on your characteristics. You know, when Torah becomes therapy, that it actually it's therapeutic for you and it changes your, it actually has an impact on your emotions and your behavior, then you know that it's real, that it's hitting home, that you're communicating, that you really get it. Otherwise, if it, if it doesn't evoke any response inside, then it's, it's just interesting talk, philosophy, and, and then you just go to sleep. I mean, what difference does it make? You don't wake up differently, you don't wake up excited, you're not inspired, you're not moved. So that's the ultimate litmus test. You have to internalize it. Torah is not just philosophy, interesting information. Torah comes from the words guidance. It has to teach you, change you, transform you, inspire you, move you. That's, that's, that's why it's godly. It changes you. It obligates you. It moves you. If you study math, science, physics, it doesn't change you. It doesn't obligate you. It's interesting theory, interesting. If you're intellectual, you like it, and you enjoy it, then it doesn't affect you, it doesn't change you, it doesn't make you a better person. Torah has to light a fire. Lessons in Tanya, taught by Rabbi Ben Zion Krasniansky. For more Tanya study, please visit our website at www.lessonsintanya.com.